Well, hello again. Yes, it's me, Phil Ryan, at the Story Hive, the podcast and the home of amazing audio stories, presenting yet another selection. Well, as I'm always saying, stories, I think, should entertain, they should thrill, they should make you gasp. And that's what I try to do every week with this three short story collection. As you know, they're from our main collection, but I'll talk about that a bit later. Because let's get on with our first story. It's from something that we call the Crime Files. And it's called The Attendant. And I bet, I bet you do not know what's going to happen at the end. Anyway, happy listening. Now, I try to get this stuff all set down as honestly and accurate as I can. Now, Phil's trying to get me to spice it up, as he says, but that isn't my intention. You see, I deal in facts. I'm a copper, a flick, a pig. In other words, a police officer. So the next story is exactly as it happened. No zhuzhing it up. I'm sorry, Phil. It's just what happened. And to the best of my knowledge in this story, why it happened. Now, this story comes from a very early part of my career, and it really did make me think. But when all is said and done, my job was simple. Discover crime, thwart crime, and prevent crime. Now, this crime was what they called a sort of cold case because it had sort of gone past and nobody had ever figured it out. But it grabbed my attention. And like all of these stories, it never ever saw the light of day. But it was about the power of someone's imagination and process catching everyone out. So here it is, the attendant. Now you might remember in one of my other stories, I told you about Frank Delaney, a real career criminal, a real opportunist. Now, often those sort of people, well, they are crooks. But there's others, and they're not even criminal until they are. Until they make that move, you know, over to the dark side. Now, the important fact, well, for me anyway, what makes people do it? What makes a good person turn? And unsurprisingly in my career, I have found it's generally another bad person or a bad situation. Now, George Jones, yeah, not his real name, but he wasn't a criminal. He'd never broken the law. He'd never had a parking ticket. He was just an ordinary bloke living his life with his wife, Mary. Yep, not her real name either. You'll get this. He had a job, a house, no kids, and he was to all intents and purposes, an ordinary run-of-the-mill bloke. Now, that was until the arrival of Sir Hilary Forbes Hamilton. Look, can we just agree that none of the names I'm using are real, all right? Anyway, Sir Hilary Forbes Hamilton was the new head of a very large and famous public art gallery, a big one, and his was a new appointment, a reward for being in the current dodgy government of the country, a failed politician, a toff, and by all accounts, a public schoolboy who'd never really grown up. Now, the particular institution he joined, the one I'm talking about, had run smoothly for over 50 years until our Sir Hillary showed up, a real arch-conservative type. He ignored his government's failure to properly fund the arts. He was a privatiser, a sell-everything-to-the-highest-bidder sort of bloke. But luckily for us, this idiot was bound by the rules and the board of the trustees, so he couldn't carry out some of his more stupid ideas. But he could radically alter how the place was run, which he proceeded to do. And that is where our George comes in. Now, the gallery I'm talking about, no clues here, had been set up in 1824 by the government at the time. And they said it was a symbol of culture and forward thinking, But really, it was designed to show foreigners that we were superior to them. Plus, we were terribly civilised. And it was going to be free at a point of entry. And the building eventually became an iconic structure, a symbol of the country, if you like. Now, like all of these institutions over the years, it had created its own way of operating, its traditions. And they pretty much remained the same, unchanged, for over just 102 years until Sir Hilary happened. Now, 
To be fair to the idiot, there had been other directors before him and they'd had their go at ruining the place. But happily, somehow it had survived. Unchanged. Wonderful. A jewel of the nation, in fact. One solid tradition was the staff, the gallery attendants. And they were retained by the gallery. They were the beating heart of the building. They ran it, nurtured it, made it flow and live. And these were a very proud group of men and women. Many started their working lives there and finally ended them there, retiring after a long and rewarding career of service, faithfully serving the British public. Now this was our George. He'd started back when he was just 18, a junior gallery attendant. Now it's the 1960s, which was a difficult time, but George had progressed. He'd gained knowledge. He'd been a diligent worker. He got promoted constantly. He was never off sick. He was always smart in his uniform. And more interestingly, he was an absolute lover of art, specifically the medieval period. Now, like many of his keener colleagues, his knowledge was extensive. And various new directors had created education courses for the staff over the years. And George was in love with the whole period. He'd gone to night school, opened university. He'd even acquired a degree in art, and he was very proud of it. Mary always by his side, though. A real love match, according to the neighbours. Now, George and Mary lived in a council house just near the centre of town. A 15-minute walk to the gallery. A walk our George had taken for most of his adult life. Mary was a dinner lady at a nearby school. Lovely woman. All in all, they were a typical London couple. Hard-working, decent people. And then along came... Sir Hilary. Now, like all ideologues, he was no respecter of tradition. Plus, he was bent. And that is to say, not actually illegal in a true criminal sense. But he was happy to take consultancy fees for his services. In this case, for effectively handing over the gallery staff to a private agency. And this was an old trick. You take them away from their solid working practices. You allow some sleazebag middleman to cream off the old profits for doing nothing. And what they always do, they lower the people's wages, extend their hours, reduce their benefits. Now, unsurprisingly, this particular sleazebag who ran the agency was another failed politician friend of Sir Hilary's. Now, happily, the unions here were strong. But George, well, he could tell Sir Hilary was going to lay waste the place he loved. The idiot was always going on the telly giving interviews, chucking around words like, modernisation, moving with the times, which was a bit rich coming from some overprivileged twit who'd inherited his family money, went to the oldest public schools and universities in the country, not paid for any of them and enjoyed all the perks his old position had offered him. But there you are. That's politicians, right? Now, one thing about our George was that all of his years of study had actually turned him into an expert on his chosen art period, the medieval religious works. And actually, it was a common knowledge that he was sought out by scholars, academics and gallery owners. Such was his actual extensive grasp of his field. But funny, he was a quiet man, everyone said so. Not fussy or demonstrative. He had his allotment, his watercolours, his beloved Fulham FC. And in essence, he was a gentle man, in every sense of the word. But with the arrival of Sir Hilary, something changed in George. Not that anyone noticed, because to everyone he was the old George, fun, kind, hard-working, on duty, never late, doing his job. Now, our George had started to look after his Mary. The poor thing had survived a brush with cancer. But Sir Hilary, in the background, was forever trying to fiddle with things, and George didn't need that. And in one case, Sir Hilary was messing with a pension fund. Again, happily, he failed. But as far as I can tell, that was the catalyst for our George. You see, his Mary, she'd recovered, thankfully. But according to her sister, she'd been very worried by the tales of all the changes at the gallery. And George and her only had their small savings, his pension being the only means of support in their old age. Now, say what you like about some jobs, but the gallery didn't exactly pay generously. Just like many institutions, it just didn't. And the pension wasn't up to much either. But you see, George had been happy. 
They didn't need much, him and Mary. They had a holiday every year, Margate with Mary's sister. And then George's one big treat. They'd visit various galleries around the world, the big ones. George had forged lifelong friendships with other senior attendants just like himself. I actually saw his flight itinerary and he put the miles in across the decades, him and Mary. He had even eventually self-published a little book on the painting techniques of the medieval artists he so loved. His years of study showing he was much more than a senior gallery attendant, but not apparently to Sir Hilary, who was once again starting more attempts to offer early retirement to certain staff members, getting rid of them against their wishes. Now, the union fought him tooth and nail. But for George, that was the last straw, I think. In all my years of studying the criminal mind, I'm always fascinated by the justifications some make for their criminal actions. It's a moral maze, you might say. But when it all comes down to it, there's a right and there's a wrong. I'm a thief catcher. That was my job. Yeah, I'm retired now and I'm not misty-eyed about it. But this case really made me raise an eyebrow. You see, the patience and nerve it had required was pretty breathtaking. It just was. I'll expand on that. See, I got the case and I talked to George's colleagues. Remember, this was a cold case. Long ago closed. But going back over it, they all agreed in their report it just wasn't like him to behave the way he had. But they understood. And the whole thing, as far as I could tell, came down to one particular conversation he'd had with Sir Hilary at a staff meeting. The upshot of which the idiot was going on about being more commercial, saying people needed new things. So much the collection, and get this, being old hat. Probably worth mothballing, putting in the storage. He'd actually used that word. And everyone felt that impact. George's older colleagues thinking fearfully about the collections they looked after and, of course, their futures. What next madness was Sir Hilary pushed through, they thought. Do you know, he'd already expanded the gift shop, added two more very upmarket cafes and a rooftop restaurant. The prices there way too high for regular people. He'd reduced gallery space for commercial reasons, he said. And again, interestingly, Every new cafe in that building belonged to a friend of his son-in-law's upmarket catering company. The contract rather generous. Hmm, funny that, eh? Many of the trustees, though, and this is terrible, started to side with the idiot. Many, of course, being from the political party, he'd apparently left. The one clear message, though, to the staff, they were getting to be an afterthought, an annoying irrelevance. More computers and touch screens being added into gallery floors. That personal touch, over all that time being lost. Those stories they knew and the years of experience simply seen as irrelevant. Now, if I'm honest, I couldn't pinpoint when George started that plan. His plan, I call it. Or how many of his colleagues had been involved. But started it, he had. And quietly and confidently, he'd bided his time. And the years had passed, him and Mary, happy as they'd ever been. Her sister even going as far to say they were more relaxed than she'd seen for years. They were very happy. George spent more time up at the allotment, Mary at the bingo and helping out the community centre. You see, as I said, none of my reports, none of my files ever made it to the papers. They couldn't, they can't. But you see, my team were asked to review it and make a report, which is what I'm doing now. Now, the key to all of this, like so many things, because it would never have come to light, was all to do with a completely unexpected chain of events, ones no one could ever have imagined. And in this case, it was a protest by some youngsters about cruelty to farm animals. You see, our idiot Sir Hilary, like previous directors, was keen to attract sponsorship for various exhibitions. Nothing unusual there. But in this particular instance, his choice of sponsor proved a bit contentious. Again, an old connection to a school chum. It was that agricultural fertiliser and feed group, I think Trent Co or something, looking, I understand, for some favourable publicity. 
Now, I don't know about these things, but according to one of my junior team, this particular company had a really bad track record of using dodgy animal feed, full of chemicals, bad for them, the environment, and all of that. And that led to our one small group of committed young individuals staging, and here's the point, a rooftop protest on the gallery. And it got the TV people down, my colleagues in blue, and they generally made a big fuss. Now, in their eagerness to get their message across, they'd accidentally, accidentally mind, damaged a small section of the roof. And it was the same section of this damaged roof that caused a minor flood some four months later, during a particularly heavy downpour. But the flood luckily had missed and not damaged any of the valuable paintings on the floor below. But, of course, the gallery team, very sensibly, had to check out the works for any possible water ingress. And it was there, during those studies, it was revealed that out of 50 small works, 40 were in fact perfect forgeries medieval paintings. The originals have been clearly being removed, a best guess, some many years earlier. You see, they were kind of small and insignificant, on a floor now rarely visited thanks to Sir Hilary, a floor overseen by our George, the medieval painting expert, and the subject of their paints, composition and construction being the central theme of his little self-published book. Now, They'd never attracted that much attention, which, according to one of the report's authors, made them no less significant in art history terms. But Sir Hilary didn't see it that way. Now, it was our same George, who, interestingly, I figured out, had indeed taken early retirement, many years before this discovery, like many of his older colleagues, all of whom, when I checked on them, seemed very happy now apparently financially comfortable in their retirements. Now, of course, George was no longer resident in his small council home. Neighbours had reported them leaving years ago without really saying where they were going. Now, happily after this, Sir Hilary resigned, no doubt to go and cause disaster somewhere else, protected, as always, by his money and privileged. But the good news was he was gone. Now... There was a final clue, if I can call it that, and this was the wonderful paintings of George's allotment, remember the one he loved spending time on, all by him hanging in the allotment holder's tea shed. Glorious and detailed, showing what a really fine painter George was. Now add that to the apparent innocent expressions of the various specialist private gallery owners I spoke to personally. Oh yeah, they said they knew George. Everyone in their field did. And yes, they were as shocked as anyone to find out what had happened. And yes, of course, it was possible the paintings had found their way into the hands of private collectors for very large cash sums. But of course, they didn't know anything about that sort of thing. The expression being, I think, butter wouldn't melt in their mouths, being rather apposite during those little chats. Now, as for our George, he was a criminal. He took things that didn't belong to him. And I recently saw that Sir Hilary on the old telly, caught up in some funny business, illegal contracts. So maybe someone, at last, would do some time. And if I'm honest, I would rather it was him. But crime is crime, right? Yeah, it is. Like I said... I bet you didn't see the ending. And sometimes it's great, isn't it? Because you can't read some people. They're deeper and deeper than you can ever imagine. And they surprise us. That's, that's what I think anyway. Anyway, let me get straight to it with the second story. Now, this one comes with a warning because it is a chiller and it's from the Horror Club selection. So it's a horror story and it's called The Vampire House. So maybe don't listen at night or on your own or in the dark. I mean, it's up to you, but be prepared to come and have a listen and have a journey to the vampire house. The children scrambled up the stairs, their feet banging loudly on the bare treads. The carpet was coming next week, and she thought about yelling but stopped. Leave it, she thought. It'd been hard enough on them. They sounded happy. The divorce, thankfully, had been quick, and Simon had folded. Her lawyers had told her he would. 
It was an open and shut case, really. A cliche, older man, younger secretary, a love nest. Such a pretty name for a sordid thing. A place where a husband went to have sex with a girl half his age. A paid-for flat in Chelsea. A secret bank account she knew nothing about. Her parents had been amazing. Money wasn't an issue, luckily. Daddy had been fantastic, her rock. He'd always been that. Mummy too. The family business now run by her brother Tom. And he'd been wonderful as well. He'd found this, the new house. She couldn't stay at the old place. It felt dirty, sullied. She'd even found out Simon had brought the girl back there, twice, when she and the children had been away at the grandparents in Cornwall. But now the new house was half finished. It would be great, though, she thought, once it was done. Victorian, large, short tarmac driveway, a broad garden front and back, and solid. Red brick, like all the houses in the area. Lovely quiet roads, wide, tree-lined. A new start, Tom had said. Marilyn wasn't sure. 25 years of living with Simon, poof, vanished overnight. And she wondered if she'd ever really known him. But then she dismissed the thought. That's what her counsellor had said. He told her about this. They were unhelpful, she said. Don't second guess yourself. Don't run everything through your mind. And now, thankfully, her sleeping had got better and she stopped the tablets. To be honest, they'd helped a bit but they'd always left a muzzy in the morning. But in truth, she just felt betrayed, just useless, so unwanted. The new area, that was lovely. The children had to catch a bus to school now, but it wasn't so bad, the twins. Well, they were 12 now, both old enough, and they were good children. She trusted them. She smiled. <laughs> they had their father's quietness in them, his focus. And then she felt the bitterness rise. Just a shame he couldn't focus on keeping it in his pants. And she shook herself suddenly like a dog. Concentrate, she thought. And she heard the thumping above her head and then some music. She smiled. Her kids, she loved them to the bone. Her babies, cheeky monkeys. They were part of her heart. And then the music stopped abruptly and then a door slammed. And then she heard them back on the stairs. Thud, 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 thud. And she smiled, their energy, just wonderful. Suddenly, Toby put his head around the kitchen door. Mum, he said, we're just going to the shops. And then she heard Jenny shout from the front hallway, we're getting ice cream and going exploring, Mummy. Do you want one? Marilyn laughed, gosh, no, darling, I'm having an espresso. You two can go, but don't be out all afternoon. Uncle Tom and Auntie Flora are coming for tea, remember? Now, do you have your phones? And Toby gave a little smile that almost made her heart break. Yes, Mum, we have our phones. Love you, Mum. And he blew her a kiss, making her heart skip again. And then turning, they both scrambled away, thumping along the newly laid parquet in the hall. The door closed with a bang. Little monsters, she thought. And now, settling back in her chair, she picked up her magazine. About two hours passed when she heard the key in the front door. And then Jenny came into the kitchen, her eyes wide with excitement. Mummy, mummy, we found something out. She sounded out of breath. And then her brother appeared behind her. They were like peas in a pod. Blonde curly hair, blue eyes. And Marilyn put her magazine down. What, what, darling? And then Toby burst out before his sister could speak. It's the vampire house, mum. We saw someone looking out the window, the vampire. Marilyn sighed and then laughed. Honestly. Your Uncle Tom is as bad as a pair of you. She shook her head, the memory coming very clear. It had been three weeks ago and they'd been walking around the nearby streets when they'd come across a very run-down looking house. It occupied a large corner plot, but it looked out of character considering the area, considering the prices, Tom had said. It was the same as the other houses. Large, five-bedroomed, garden, red-brick Victorian. In fact, it had an interesting set of yellowing York stone blocks incorporated into the walls. But it looked far older than its neighbours somehow. But all the upstairs windows were shuttered, closed tight. It had an air of abandonment about it. Dark curtains hanging, old and faded, slightly torn. And the front garden was overgrown and unkempt. 
the glass in the window smeared and grubby. In fact, it just looked incongruous, set against its neighbours, all immaculate, brightly painted, fancy front doors, neat hedges. And that's when Tom had pointed it out, and then he'd said to the children, I reckon a vampire lives there, with a coffin downstairs, waiting to drink your blood. And then he'd chase them around, lifting them up, giggling into his arms, pretending to bite their necks. <sighs> the idiot. But Marilyn adored her brother. He was just a good person. His wife, Flora, beautiful, calm, just like Tom. But now, annoyingly, the name had stuck. The kids used it all the time. The Vampire House. And then the doorbell rang. I'll get it. It's Uncle Tom, Mum, Toby yelled. And he scampered away. And Jenny stood there, looking wide-eyed. Oh, Mummy, we saw a person at the window. And she lowered her voice. Maybe it was the vampire. She took a breath and she waved at us like she was angry and we ran and ran. And then Marilyn heard her brother Tom's voice with Toby laughing. And she looked at her daughter. You are a silly goose, darling. But before she could continue, her sister-in-law, Flora, came through the door, Toby clutching himself to her. Mum, Mum, look. And he was holding out a toy aeroplane. Auntie Flora got us a plane and she said we can share it. Come on, Jenny, let's go outside, let's fly it. Oh, 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 Mum, tell Auntie Flora about the vampire house. And Flora laughed and came and hugged her. Well, that's one way to be greeted. The vampire house, my silly husband, I fear. And then she laughed again. Hello, my love. And now the children had disappeared into the garden. I thought we'd liven things up, she said. And then both women laughed. Tom finally appeared and plonked a box of doughnuts on the kitchen top and he came and kissed his sister. Here you go, sis. Damn Weight Watchers, that's what I say. And Marilyn stood up. Coffee? Wine? Flora looked at her husband. Oh, wine, I think, don't you? And they both laughed. And from outside, the children's voices raised in laughter and Tom nodded. Yeah, I, I think I'd better go and supervise. And he laughed again. And Flora glanced at Marilyn and shook her head. He's been dying to play with it all morning. Now Marilyn got some glasses out and tugged the fridge door open and poured the wine. Flora accepting a glass smilingly. Mmm, lovely. So, um, what's with his vampire house then? And she laughed, shaking her head. Marilyn was about to dismiss the subject, but then found herself telling her sister-in-law the whole thing about the houses just six streets away, then that house, walking, exploring finding the vampire house and Tom giving it that silly name just to amuse the children. And they laughed again with Flora shaking her head. Honestly, my husband is an idiot telling them such things. Yeah, funny though. She sipped a wine. Do you know, when I was a kid, we had a similar place in our street, an old house, some old guy. And now she closed her eyes, shutting them tight in concentration. Ah, oh, what was his name? Um, Mr. Mr. Rogers, yeah, that was him, Mr. Rogers. He had this grey-looking house, old, faded paintwork, overgrown garden. <laughs> the local kids, including me, we used to dare each other to run up the path and bang on the door. And they called him the monster, and they said he had no reflection and no shadow. <laughs> yeah, he's actually terrible now, thinking about it, now. He'd come out and yell and we'd run away. Poor old sod. Quite frankly, we were horrible children. And Marilyn smiled as Flora went on. Do you know, he was a retired baker, my mother found out. Sad, actually. He'd lost his wife a few years earlier and he'd gone a bit senile or something, you know. And Marilyn smiled again and nodded. Out in the garden, she could hear the children yelling and shouting. And Tom saying, up, up she goes, L look at her fly. And now Flora carried on. Well, obviously, the poor old guy couldn't maintain the place. Well, you know why? He must have been 85 if he was a day. But the place, it just looked a bit spooky to us kids. Marilyn nodded. Yes, that, that's what I thought about the house round the corner. Just some poor old age pensioner, unable to look after it properly. Probably bought it years ago. When you think about it, it's rather tragic. She pulled a donut from the box and delicately took a bite. Mmm. And now she pushed the plate towards Flora. Help yourself, my love. The day is just young and the box is large.
The hours passed, and now it was getting dark outside, and the hall clock pinged. Tom and Flora had left hours ago, and she stood in the kitchen stirring a pan, a stir-fry, the children sitting on the corner top. Both had the books out. It had been a lovely day. She'd felt happy, and then she remembered what Jenny had said earlier. Darlings, she said, and Toby and Jenny looked up from their books. You know the house on the corner? You, you know, she nearly said vampire house. Well, the old tatty-looking one, you know? Toby nodded. Well, it's probably just an old lady, like Grandma Nancy living there, you know? That's who waved at you, Jenny, just an old lady. It's not fair or kind to be nasty if you don't know someone. And calling her a vampire and things, well, that's not nice, really. She might be, she paused, well, you know, frightened you know, of other people living there on her own. Like Grandma Nancy, you know, not very well. Now she thought of her ex-husband's mother, Grandma Nancy. A pleasant old thing, long since widowed, and now tragically showing clear signs of dementia. And she'd watched as she'd slowly gone from a confident woman to a slightly fearful person in a three-year decline. The doctors could do nothing. Now the poor thing virtually jumping at her own shadow. And Marilyn had felt very bad about her. She even hadn't taken the children to see them, well, for months now, as on the last visit, she hadn't recognised anyone. Simon, to his credit, had put her in a home, a lovely place, bright and cheerful, brilliant staff. He was, if nothing else, a good son. She liked that about him, just not much else. But Grandma Nancy, she thought, well, at least she was being looked after well. It was just sad about her mind. And she remembered a very difficult conversation on the way home in the car. And the children, well, they were old enough to understand, she thought. But she knew how upset they felt afterwards, no matter how well she'd explained it. And of course, at the back of her mind, the whole divorce thing still running. God knew what Simon had told him. She just knew they were both still struggling with it the divorce and all that had gone on. And of course they saw their father. She was never going to stop that. It was important, she knew. And now she put the hot food onto their plates. So let's not bother the old lady. Yes, if, if you do see her children, be good and polite. And now they both nodded, twins in sync. And she kissed the top of Jenny's head. Now, books down, eat up. And... There's doughnuts from Uncle Tom for pudding. And Toby's small face lit up. Brilliant, Mum. Just brilliant. The next weeks passed slowly. Builders crashing around the place. The house slowly coming together. The children were away on a school trip, Switzerland. They'd been so excited about it. And oddly, Marilyn liked having the place to herself. She missed them, of course. But the decoration and things, they were taking up so much time. And plus, Mummy and Daddy had come up from Cornwall. The girls from the club, they'd been around. And in a way, it was like the house was never empty. She'd had a brief chat with Simon about schedules. She always felt angry with him, no matter what she thought. And a counsellor had told her not to show it. And it was hard, but she did her best. But now, she didn't care what he thought. Not anymore. It was just about... Her and the children. They mattered and he didn't. And then finally, Saturday arrived and the children were back, breathless and full of stories and pictures and videos on their phones. And a housewarming party had finally been arranged. Marilyn had felt it was time. It was Flora's idea and she'd even come early to help with the food, with other friends dropping plates and containers on the kitchen surfaces. It was going to be a lovely day, she thought. Tom had even come with two cases of wine, typical of him. And soon the doorbell was ringing and the house was humming. And Toby and Jenny were running around the garden, clamouring to be allowed to go to the shops. A tiny high street by the local overground train station. Its chief attraction to them being an ice cream shop right on one of the cafes. Then of course Tom had produced a £10 note with typical generosity, which he then carefully entrusted to Jenny. And Marilyn watched her brother with the children. God, she thought, they adored him. 
You could see it in Toby's eyes and the way Jenny clung to his arms. They were so lucky. And eventually, with more noise, the children straggled out the front door. Yes, shouted Toby, they had their phones. The local shops were barely a ten-minute walk away, but still, it was just the way she felt. Twenty minutes passed and the kitchen and the garden were full now, and the evening was just appearing, the garden lights coming on automatically, when suddenly her phone buzzed. It was Toby. He sounded a bit out of breath and she could hear giggling in the background, and then Jenny came on the line. It seemed that Toby had dared Jenny to knock on the front door of the vampire house, and then an old lady had come out and they'd run away. And then a man across the street had seen them and he'd shouted at them and he said they should behave themselves. And now Jenny sounded frightened, her tone obvious. They were coming now, they said. They were coming home. But Marilyn was annoyed. Oh, no, you don't. You wait there. I'm coming now. I'm very annoyed. You hear me? Do not move from that spot. And now she was angry and she looked at the kitchen full of chattering people and told Fura what had happened. I've got to go round and sort this out. It's just ridiculous. And she grabbed her car key, her new Range Rover electric, silently now pulling off the drive, gleaming after its morning run through the car wash. The house was barely five minutes away and she quickly pulled into a space. And she, now she looked at the slightly decrepit building, its shuttered windows, the torn curtains. And there were the children standing outside on the pavement. Marilyn got out the car and Toby looked crestfallen, Jenny fidgeting, shuffling her feet. Marilyn's tone was crisp. Right, you two. Tell me what happened exactly. Across the street, a man had been trimming a hedge, and now he saw her, and turning off his machine, he waved to her. Are, are these two yours? His tone was friendly, and she felt relieved. She really wasn't in the mood for a scene. <laughs> Mostly, and he laughed and came over. He was nice looking, around 50, grey hair, very fashionably cut. Yeah, I, I saw them early, larking about at Mrs Zinsky's place, banging on the door, your lad, shouting about holding up a mirror and things. Poor old love, probably frightened to death. And Marilyn nodded, yes, I'm, no, I'm, so, I'm, I'm sure they didn't mean any harm. And the man grinned, now, nah, just kids being kids. I was that age once. He winked boyishly. I was a right little sod, my dad said. And Marilyn laughed easily. He was cute, she felt. And now he scratched his neck. Yeah, my wife and I just moved here three months back. And he pointed. It's a bit sad, though, her house. It lets the street down a bit, don't you think? It's not good for the prices. Well, what can you do? And he trailed off. And Marilyn instantly liked him less. Oh, oh, she said. Well, look, I'll get them away now. It just felt awkward. And he nodded and turning, he walked back across the street. And as Marilyn turned and went back towards the car, Jenny pointed. Mummy. And now turning, she saw an old woman coming out the front door, walking slowly down the path. Mrs Zinsky, she presumed. God, she looked old. The woman looked like a strong wind could blow her away. And unusually, she was wearing small dark glasses, which she now took off. Her gaze was watery, and she looked at Marilyn. Hello. Good evening, I'm Mrs Zinsky. She pronounced the D as a T, her voice heavily accented. And now Marilyn was a little thrown. And she shook the old lady's outstretched thin hand. Oh, oh, hello, yes, good evening. I'm, I'm Marilyn Frobisher-Jones. I'm so sorry if my children have bothered you. And the old woman smiled slowly. No, no, it's not bothered, my dear. Children will be children. I'm sure they meant nothing by it. I, I suppose we were all children once. They're quite delightful, my dear. I, I, I can see this. They're a credit to you. And now Marilyn felt really bad. What a sweet old thing. But it was just a bit embarrassing. I mean, what on earth could she say? And then suddenly an idea came to her and she turned to the children. Now, to say sorry properly for bothering Mrs Zinsky, um, I, I don't know, why don't we ask Mrs Zinsky if she needs a hand with anything? And she turned and smiled at the old lady who stood there behind her. Oh, huh, my dear, how kind. I, I do have one small thing, just some boxes in my kitchen. They need putting downstairs in my basement. They're not very big, but 
<laughs> my time of life with my back. Well, she shrugged. And now Marilyn made her mind up. Right. Do you hear that, you two? I'm going to leave you here to help Mrs. Zinsky just for a bit. And then I'll come back in 20 minutes, right? The children nodded and shuffled their feet. And Mrs. Zinsky nodded now, her expression bright. Oh, my dear, how very lovely it is. So much appreciated it really is. And she turned and smiled. Now you children are very kind to help me. She gave a tiny smile. Perhaps I have some sweets for you. Yes, have some in the basement. Marilyn's phone beeped. It was a text from Flora. Where are you? Then on impulse, she lifted her phone and said, I know, let's get a picture. And there Mrs. Inski stood with the children on either side of her, framed by the shining Range Rover. Click. Marilyn said, oh, that's wonderful. Look, I'll be back in a while. It's lovely to meet you. And Mrs. Inski smiled and now walked back into the house, the children happily following her. And she paused at the door and gave a little wave, the children waving too. And now Marilyn felt so much better. She knew Toby and Jenny were very good. It'd just been childish silliness, that was all. Children being naughty, nothing malicious intended. And then she suppressed a smile. No harm done. In fact, a good lesson learned, as her father used to say. And now she looked back at the house. Flora was right. The poor old thing just living on her own. She just couldn't cope. I mean, look at it. The house was really big. And the way the old lady had moved, she was virtually skin and bone. I mean, no one of that age could maintain a place of that size, not on her own. Marilyn sighed to herself. Maybe she had the house, but little else, a small state pension, probably. Now she felt a bit sad. The old woman had looked so heavily made up, almost a thick sunblock plastered on, a fine dark moustache on her upper lip. She had to be 95 if she was a day. God, must be hard to be so vulnerable. Hmm. Marilyn got back in the car. She talked to the children again in the next few days. The vampire house. They had to stop calling it that now. God, Tom and his silly stories. And now she headed home. And when she got in, she told Flora what had happened. Look, darling, she said, it was so embarrassing. She's a lovely old thing, really. And she held her phone up. See? Flora just looked confused. Who is? And Marilyn spun her phone round. There was the picture. Toby and Jenny, their little faces and their best smiles, their reflections clear in the car's freshly washed paintwork. But between them, where Mrs Zinsky had been standing, was a gap. Nothing. No shadow, no reflection, nobody. And then she remembered the old woman's last words, where she was taking the children to the basement. Well, I can tell you I enjoyed writing that one. But on that subject, writing, I always say it's a marvellous way of expressing ourselves. And, and we tend not to write unless we're writers. I mean, people write in offices, they write business letters and things like that. But it's not quite the same. So just try to write a story. I always say the act of looking at a blank page with not a clue in your head what's going to be on it is actually quite an adventure. And it can be really quite liberating. Here's the exercise, because I like to kind of throw these out. Just write the very first sentence, the very first sentence that comes into your head. It doesn't matter what it is, how mad or bonkers it might be. And from that, try to construct an entire story. Because once you get going, it's really good. And you'd be surprised how good it actually makes you feel. Anyway, enough about that. It's the final story. And it's called Scene. And I think... It's rather beautiful. He was a quiet boy. Always had been, according to his parents. Themselves, both quiet people. Maeve, a mother. Craig, a forest warden. And Colin, their son. The Highlands of Scotland, their home. A tradition, really. Both families having deep roots in the area. The Gilchrists. Known family lineages stretching back centuries. Good people, according to the local constable Callum Scott. But Colin had an issue, and they'd kept his condition hidden very well for years. 
until finally it was beyond all of them. And then he was sent to the big hospital in Glasgow. The specialists absolutely lost. And of course, everything had been kept under wraps. He'd been just 12 years old when first admitted, but he wasn't in pain and he didn't suffer in any physical way. His mind, however, slightly struggling to cope for being just a boy, it was a big thing to deal with. It was his mother, Maeve, she'd noticed it first. The tip of his left ear, missing. She bent down to kiss him goodnight as she'd moved his mop of brown curly locks aside, her cheek tightly pressed against his. He was an affectionate boy. He adored his mother. Everyone said so. They had a bond. And Colin and his father, they were fine too. And his mother held him and looked very closely. His ear tip wasn't missing at all. She could feel it. But now it was invisible. It could still be felt and just not seen. And soon other parts of Colin began to lose visual substance. And that's when the test started. And he took them with quiet grace, the family reporting his spirits were high. And the locals were all concerned, but of course they couldn't be told exactly what the true nature of the problem was. A strange virus, they said, that was the cover story. And it had made the boy unwell, him requiring to be up at the big hospital. And the village pub even put on a fundraiser. But thankfully, it wasn't needed as it transpired. The Gilchrist's house was deep in the forests, part of Craig's job. It came with his job, a Highland agency position. He was a civil servant, in effect. His task, to manage thousands of acres of woodlands and wild habitat with his other warden colleagues. There were two vast lochs, mountains, hills, valleys. And it had been this wild woodland that had been the original playground of little Colin. His beloved grandfather Brodie remarking he was a woods boy always had been, happiest when outside, in the greenery in the wild, by the local waterfall. Craig, his father, remarking he was more nature than the modern world he inhabited, his small school virtually never connecting him to the everyday reality of mobile phones and consumerism, the woods his real home. But then, sadly, his condition began to worsen. The specialists in the hospital at a loss to the cause. But then... One lifeline came along, but it had a double-edged sword. It was the military. Somehow they'd found out about his condition and they were interested and they wanted to experiment, to explore. So they came to Colin's parents asking for permission and they said they'd find a solution. They would take samples, they would test Colin. Nothing dangerous, more for research, they said. The inference being they hoped to somehow weaponize his unusual condition. But the offer came with a generous settlement, financial. And they all talked as a family. And then it was agreed. And they signed some official papers. And now young Colin was moved from the hospital to a specially built secret facility, closer to home, deep in the woods. Six long months passed. And Colin took every one of the tests with quiet fortitude and good grace. He was a calm boy, measured just like his father. Until, wonderfully, he'd been allowed to go back home, none the worse for wear. He'd actually enjoyed it, he told his parents. Everyone had been so kind, they'd been spoiling him with ice cream and toys and games. And best of all, they'd even created some very useful assistants, some special makeup, some wigs, flesh-coloured gloves, things that allowed him to mostly live a normal life, to be seen to mix with others. And then he turned 14. And that was the day he finally turned completely invisible. It was amazing. Without his special clothes and wigs, he appeared to just not be there, though he was. And the doctors had tested him and they knew his condition didn't hurt or cause any physical pain, but they had no cure for it whatsoever. Not one treatment they could devise. Their main concern now, how could the boy mentally cope going forwards? And it was important, they felt, that he had been returned home. His mother and father and grandparents, the key. They were a strong family unit and Colin loved them all and they loved him back. Amazingly, for one so young, he was remarkably resilient. 
He had his moments, his sadnesses, his differences from other people of his own age. But generally, his quiet nature pulled him through. That and his mother, who wrapped him up in the way only a fierce mother's love can. And of course, there was his woods and the banks around his home, his lifelong connection. But then came the return of the scientists from the military, now wanting more tests, wanting back at the facility. But this time young Colin simply refused, and his parents agreed. And then a court case began, in secret of course. The family lawyer advising them against going public. It didn't do to go up against the government, he said, and it would be bad for Colin in the long run, especially the secret to be let out. And that's when Colin finally disappeared. He left, he ran away, and that's when it all began. The original reports were quite vague, mostly hearsay and conjecture, the military now completely wrong-footed, the judge finally ruling in the family's favour, and they added a hefty compensation bill. But still the family remained tight-lipped about Colin's whereabouts, and he remained potentially at large, as mentioned by the local constable Callum Scott in his report. But there was no evidence forthcoming, the whole area now aware. Of course they didn't have the full picture, but they had enough. And the highlands are quite vast, on the ground even more so. And even modern military helicopters with heat-seeking equipment and other devices couldn't find a boy, not in all that vastness. Besides, Colin had grown up there. He knew its caves, its passages, its dells and its rocks, the rushing streams and fresh water courses. He'd grown up in the thick forest, along its paths, all hidden, all unknown to most. The military concluded putting troops on the ground would have been like looking for a needle in a haystack until eventually they simply gave up, the secret of Colin eluding them all. The years passed and nothing more was heard and the family thrived and the village carried on life as usual. But only one report was leaked. It surfaced briefly on an obscure website claiming that somehow a combination of chemicals had created a discolouring effect on human tissue, possibly ingested, local water sources being suggested. But the basis of it was to say the effect rendered human tissue see-through, invisible. Meanwhile, Colin had stayed gone. His young life now tragically altered by his condition forever, but somehow through it all, though he was missing, his parents remained happy, this eventually pointing to a rather unusual arrangement. It is a truism in nature that species adapt, they change, sometimes to suit their new environment. And Colin's grandfather Brody was a canny man, good with investments, and his stewardship of Colin's original payouts and his later compensation seemed to result in the family never needing to worry about money ever again. And the local constable, Callum Scott, could only point to the rumours, for that's all they were. It was said you could see some nights, the Gilchrist's house, far from any road or other habitation, brightly lit up. But any visitors approaching were easily detected long before they reached the building. A new security system, now firmly in place, paid for from the family trust fund. A home, a refuge, a place any family could safely gather in undisturbed and unseen. Then came the talk of the other children, some from the nearby villages. The same condition, but just a rumour, nothing substantial. A young girl, once in Colin's class, the same age, once a close friend of his, Isla Hamilton. And Craig and his local forestry colleagues still tended to their duties, their work a constant thing, and they carried it out diligently, the land and its protection and preservation, their daily task. There were four small villages within their area, close-knit, few outsiders arriving in such wild, remote places, miles and miles of endless moors. And life for the Gilchrists carried on. The days turned to months, and finally to years, until Maeve, unexpectedly, fell pregnant 
with her and Craig's second child, and they named her Aurora, their little star, a baby sister for Colin, the apparently absent and invisible Colin. But then came that first story, a lost little girl, a family up from Edinburgh, their first camping trip ever, the parents foolish and unprepared, the Highland weather treacherous. A vicious rainstorm had set in apparently, and a tar on their car had gone, its replacement not easy in the downpour. And unused to such activity, the parents together finally managed to replace it. The only problem being the disappearance of their tiny little girl. They'd exhaustedly searched the woods, called and cried out up near a high valley, its sloped sides thick with trees, until eventually they'd been forced to call for help. The first to arrive being Callum Scott, the local constable, bringing with him a group of volunteers. And then they got the whole story. Somehow, the six-year-old little girl, Lily, had managed to leave the caravan while the tyre was being fixed. She'd wandered off, and frantically they'd called for help. And soon, nothing. The darkness fell, and the rain rose. Until, terribly, for that evening, they'd had to abandon the search. Happily, though, the report had a better ending. But it tripped itself up as it tried to explain some rather strange occurrences. One of the tracking dogs had discovered the little girl, its joyful barks being followed by its handler, one Mr Hamish Gillicuddy, and he stated that he'd found the wee mite in a fine bivouac, ash tree branches strong, lined with moss and ferns, a marvel of construction, and there'd been a fire outside, and he could tell she'd only just woken up and she was crying for a ma when he arrived with Shelby, his collie. He went on to say that on looking inside, he could see she had a huge leaf with fruit and what appeared to be a warm baked potato with a large wooden cup of water. This being impossible for him to explain, as how could a little girl so young have made all of these things? But then he added, The wee thing went on about a green boy, like Peter Pan and a girl, like Wendy, with flowers in her hair, just like in her book, and they sang to her and built her a wee house with a fire and everything. His report finally dismissing it as just pure luck, the little girl had found an abandoned bivouac left by campers. Just a piece of luck. And the rest of his description had been handily ignored. He'd said a lost and frightened small child's imagination was clearly in overdrive. But then he seemed unsure. How could such a tiny thing have built such an amazing bivouac? And then he'd concluded it didn't matter because the ending was a happy one. And after that came the occasional story, rumours mostly, nothing ever proved. And in the Highlands, life carried on as usual. The Gilchrists thrived. Maeve's baby girl Aurora was the spit of her mother. And she grew up taller than her father Craig, long-limbed and vital, her skin pale, her eyes a vivid green with flame-red hair, a wild and exuberant forest child. A real nature child, her grandfather said. She was happiest when in the woods and the valleys around her home, and she was joyful and secure in the knowledge that she was loved. But like many children, she told them she had an invisible friend, two in fact, who played with her forever. I will confess that one was a bit weird, but still lovely, I think. Well, that's it. Another episode's over for today. And as you know, we have the StoryHive platform. That's our main home, the storyhive.co.uk. Please go there because you can access all the other things that we do. And if you'd be so kind, follow us on social media, give us a tick or a like. We do this stuff. We don't charge any money. It makes a lot of effort, but we think it's worth it. Because to entertain and give people just a break from the grubby, horrible world that we sometimes have to live in is a kind of good thing. So remember, we are the Story Hive, the home of amazing audio stories. And today I think I'm going to leave you with my normal little phrase, I hope the world makes you smile today. Okay, bye now. <laughs> <laughs>